This is an ABC podcast. This conversation includes a discussion of suicide. Please take care when listening. If you or someone you know needs support, Lifeline is there for you on 13 11 14. When she was a kid, Bronwyn Edwards idolised her big brother Mark. Sure, they fought, like siblings do, but they were always close and grew closer as they got older, even as Mark left home to join the Royal Australian Air Force. Mark was high-flying and high-achieving, and to the people who loved him, Mark's future looked to be a wonderful thing. But cracks started to appear in Mark's life. All at once, everything seemed to snowball. Before she knew it, Bronwyn became her big brother's lifeline, the person he would call when he felt like he couldn't go on anymore. When Mark was 43 years old, he took his own life. And that day altered the course of Bronwyn's own life. She's become a voice for people who've been desperately trying to help someone they love stay alive and for people who have survived suicide. Bronwyn is the founder of Roses in the Ocean, an advocacy group that is reforming government policy and changing social attitudes towards suicide with the aim of keeping people like Mark alive. Hi, Bronwyn. Hi, how are you? Tell me about your childhood that you shared with Mark. Where did the two of you grow up? We were initially growing up on acreage out at Pullenvale, so that's in the western suburbs of Brisbane, and um, it was a fabulous place to be. I was quite little by the time we left there, but we had such strong connections that we continued to grow up in Pullenvale, even though our home wasn't there after the time I was about three. But there was, I think, I don't know, six or seven families in this one little street, no fences, everyone was on a few acres. So all the kids were about the same age and we just had, you know, 15, 20 acres to roam around. Um, So lots of fun, you know, dad had built a great cubby house and there'd be um, my my really close girlfriends, there were twins born uh, at the house uh, next door to us 12 days before me. So we grew up literally from, you know, day one of, of my birth um, and, and other guys in, in, in the street with Mark and they'd be all cowboys and Indians <laughs> and we'd be in the cubby house. And yeah, it was it was a great start. And then we moved to um, Jindalee, still in the western suburbs, but on the river. So then we had that sort of freedom and what have you and, and more great, great friends. So, How did your mum let you know when it was time to come back home after playing all day? <laughs> that was funny. All the mums had a different thing basically to bang. <laughs> so someone had the hubcap and my mum had the big old rusty cowbell because um, so you'd, you'd get to dusk and you'd start hearing the various mums calling you back in time for a bath and dinner. What are some of your earliest memories of your brother Mark? Earliest memories. I mean, we fought like cat and dog. We really did. Um, Over what sort of things? I think everything. I, I don't know. I mean, we, we we also got on really well, but we definitely, it must have, you know, been quite challenging for mum and dad, I would think. But he was always, he always filled a room, I guess. He was, uh, he had lots of mates and was, he played lots of sport. He uh, he hated study. Like my My mum used to find him... Um, you know, with a, a physics book on, on the desk, but but actually a, an Air Force magazine on top of it. <laughs> so from a very early age, he wanted to fly. That's all he ever wanted to do. But he was, yeah, he was quite an annoying big brother for a lot of times. He'd come in and destroy your room and then blame you for doing it. You know, it was that sort of big brother. I've got four big brothers and they can be, they're a particular <laughs> breed of annoying. They're a particular breed. Your parents separated when you were a teenager. What did Mark say to you when that happened? So I was nine when mum and dad um, decided to part ways. Mark was 13. Yeah, I distinctly remember the day. It's strange how just key events in your life, you, you just remember that day. But it was in the afternoon after we had been told and various conversations had been had. And I just remember ending up in his room and sitting on his lap uh, and he just said to me, we need to stick together. We really need to stick together now. And I I don't know. I, I Obviously at 13 he had more insight, I guess, as, as much as a 13-year-old can have maybe what that was going to mean Um but it was a real moment for us because it was like, it's you and me now. Um, he left home to join the Air Force. Did you miss him? A lot. 
Yeah, I did really miss him. And, but he was absolutely following his dream. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's positives that come out of that as well. I mean, he was off just living this incredible life and, and I still can't fathom how any of them fly those things. Um, so, but at the same time, with Mark then off starting his life elsewhere, you know, I got really special one-on-one time with mum, one-on-one time with dad, uh, and so you've got to look at the positives that come out of things as well. But yes, it was amazing when he would get holidays and come home. And of course, we'd never see him as much as we wanted to because he'd be busy catching up with all his mates. But it was um, yeah, always great to have him back. It was something he always wanted to do, flying, but it's such a rigorous, intensive course and not everyone makes it through. How did he take to, to the training once he got there? It absolutely is a really tough um, program. I mean, obviously he loved it. So at the age of 17, like he had his pilot's license at 15 before he could drive a car, but then going straight into the Air Force direct entry, they don't do that now. You have to do a degree at the same time, but he was literally direct entry just to fly. And um, first down on the little bug smashes and sail in Victoria where it's freezing and, and then over to Perth for, for the Mackies. And, um, but I know at that time he leant heavily on, on Dad. He used to sort of say to Dad, you know, you're my Ron Barassi. There were times where it was, it was really very high pressure because you'd, you'd go for a flight. You only had, I can't remember the terms used, whether it was a scrub or something. I, I know any of his mates here listen to this will cringe, but... <laughs> If you didn't, if you got sort of three strikes, you're out. So it was very intense just to graduate from pilot's course, let alone make it into a conversion onto the fighters. He he was just 19 when he graduated. He was 19 when he graduated and he was uh, flying Mirages at 19, which is wild. So he was the youngest fighter pilot in Australia at the time um, out of wartime. You must have to have a certain kind of personality to take on a machine like that, a a kind of flying like that? Was he a bit Top Gun? In some respects, you saw a bit of Top Gun in all of them. But because I got to know a lot of his mates, you just can't stereotype because they were all really different and um, all really lovely people. But yes, could they party and could they take advantage of the fact that they were fighter pilots and were really cool? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I think there's an element. Did he have the sunglasses? Of course, they all did. <laughs> well, actually, funny thing, I remember him, um, they, the Mirages flew out of Williamtown near Newcastle. And I remember him sharing, you know, later, they would actually have to pretend, if they went out, they'd have to pretend that they weren't a fighter pilot because girls wouldn't believe them. So they'd have to sort of say, yeah, I'm doing engineering or something. <laughs> Otherwise, the girls would just go, oh, so. so it was really funny. <laughs> and what about you, Promwin? What were your ambitions after finishing school? What did you want? I was not that ambitious, which is funny now because I feel like I really have changed a lot in that sense. But I, I went through, I, I'd like to think it was the last wave of girls that went through school. I went to a, an all-girls school here in Brisbane and we really were kind of encouraged to be teachers, nurses or wives. There really was no, <laughs> it's disgusting when it's like it's, I graduated 86, it's not that long ago, right? There wasn't a lot of encouragement for girls to go and do anything. A few of them did um, and all I can think of was that, I don't know, did they have family members or something that showed them the way? So I, I all I wanted to do, I love sport, all I wanted to do was be a phys ed teacher um, and then get married and have kids. That's as much as you know, my horizons were until I actually went and lived overseas and discovered there was more. And so what took you overseas? I'd always wanted to go and, and travel and Mark actually was the one who offered to pay my airfare. So he bought me a one-way to Europe. Um, I saved up for 12 months working here on Hayman Island. Um, I did go and teach for about two and a half years, but I knew it wasn't for me. And saved up and then uh, he got my airfare and then he came and had like a three-week holiday with me fairly soon afterwards. And What do you remember um, about that time? What did the two of you get up to? I chose the three most expensive countries in <laughs> Europe because you're a backpacker and you've got no money and he just laughed at that. So we did Switzerland and um, Austria and Germany and he hired a car and we had an absolute ball. 
to this day, it's one of the saddest things for me. It's, there is the most amazing video. He had this Sony Steadicam and he talked about it all the time. It became this massive joke. Here I am on the Sony Steadicam filming Bromwyn. Um, but we have hilarious videos from that trip and a particular one of us, of him trying to go to sleep when we were near a clock tower in um, this little town in, in Austria and I can't find it. <laughs> It's got to be there. It's been 15 years almost now um, and I will keep searching. But um, we had an amazing time there. We did, he literally was just the big brother who just went, just going to show my little sister anything she wants to do and nothing was off the cards. And I, I do remember sitting in a bar one night in Zermatt near the, at the base of the Matterhorn and we'd ordered drinks and, and I think actually there was quite a cute barman and I made some comment and I remember him just looking at me going, Oh, wow, you've grown up. Like it was this realisation, this moment of, oh, my little sister's actually 23 now. We're not in Pullen Vale anymore. Yeah, it was really funny. So it was great memories from that trip. Um, what brought you back to Australia? I had spent a number of years living in London doing various things um, from nannying, going back and teaching, um, all sorts of little bits and bobs that you do when you're that age and, and just backpacked whenever I could. But I'd also come home to be bridesmaid for three friends and I came back for the third one <laughs> and, uh, and Dad sort of said to me, and I would every intention to go back again, and I was 25 or something at the time, and he just said, I think it's time you came home and got a real job. And, of course, I had no clue what that was because I didn't want to teach anymore. But Dad was one of those magnificent men, magnificent people, and... He rarely gave advice, only when asked, and he was gentle and um, really supportive. So when Dad spoke and said something, you knew, mm, okay, probably need to listen to this. <laughs> and you met a husband of your own at, at some point around this time too. Yes, I did, absolutely. So uh, I met my husband, Glenn, um, 97, I think it was, um, through through work, not working together, but, but through work. And yeah, we ended up, you know, getting married and having a family and what have you. And what about things with Mark? Was he still flying as, as you were moving into your 20s and 30s? What was he up to? Yes, absolutely. So he spent, he spent about 12 years in the Air Force. So he flew Mirages and then the F-18 Hornets. Uh, and then basically most of those guys tend to then move on in their early 30s to the international airlines. If you stay much longer, you end up in a desk job, um, flying a desk, and none of them want to do that, or not many of them. And so a lot of Mark's cohort ended up in Hong Kong flying for Cathay Pacific. So he was, um, he was doing that from when he was sort of early 30s or so. So he was doing work that, that he enjoyed. And mm. what about relationships? I mean, did he want to also get married and have kids, that whole thing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so he did, he was engaged at one point when he was still flying. So yes, he was engaged um, at some point, but it, it didn't work out. So in lots of ways, it sounds like life was, was going well for him. When did you start to notice that that things were maybe not all as they seemed or that there was stuff happening inside your brother that maybe other people wouldn't be aware of? Yeah, look, it. Um, so th there was quite a lot of stress at work up in, um, in, in the airline and Mark has this real sense of justice, like justice and fairness was really important to him. And to a degree, I, th I think this is my personal opinion, but I think to a degree, if you're going to be in the armed forces and you, ha you have to be prepared to go to war and you have to be prepared to do what's required of you when you go to war. So there is a black and white uh, level of thinking, I think, that is either in your personality. I mean, they certainly screen people, so I don't know whether that's something they look for, but it certainly has to be trained into people as well. You can't hesitate in war if you need to do something. Um, so I think he had fairly... He did have an element definitely of that sort of black and white thinking, but that, that justice sort of element is really important. And pilots who joined after he had were being offered a different pay scale. And he was, whilst he was on the higher pay scale, he was holding the placards and trying to advocate for those who weren't and what have you. So it was a bit stressful at that time. And then his engagement um, broke off. 
and then both of our grandmothers passed and that it was all in sort of the space of 10 weeks. And the first that I knew that that had just become too much was when our second grandmother passed and he came to me in tears and just said, I cannot do the eulogy. Um, can you do it? And he, he, had, he had done it for our first grandma. So that's the first inkling that I had. Did that surprise you, seeing him in that kind of vulnerable way? Yeah, I get... I, I, yes, it would have. I, I mean, I, I'd say yes, it would have. I don't remember how I felt at that time other than, of course, like... But um, it certainly wasn't a side of Mark you'd normally see. Like, he, he really was larger than life. Do you know if he went and spoke to someone else, a, a psychologist or a doctor? Did he did he try to get help with the the stress he was feeling? So he went to he did go to a GP, and I I think it was a GP referred to by the airlines or whatever. But anyway, yes, he did, and unfortunately back then, and sadly, it still happens way too much now, but. Essentially what happens if then if you went and you weren't coping with something, they just write a script for an antidepressant. Um, and it is a really sad story that that happens a lot still now, um, despite the amount of research that's out there. Um, so, yes, he was put on an antidepressant. So that was a major issue because, A, with everything I know now looking back, I think he needed some time at home with family and friends and just to be wrapped up in some support and have time to process all the stuff that had gone on. He'd never had a mental illness in the past. Um, but uh, when you are given an antidepressant back in those days, you are off the flight deck. So he, he couldn't fly anymore? Couldn't fly. And you had to be off that medication for six months before you could fly. So... These days, if that had happened, and it would be happening to people, I don't know, I don't think they can fly, but they're not just told to go home. So they're kept in uniform and they're given another role. So because what happened was uh, he was embarrassed, he was ashamed, um, his sense of purpose was gone, his loss of identity or his identity was completely challenged because he'd wanted to fly since he could talk. So that was devastating. And I remember him saying to people, oh, I've got an injury with my eye, um, because you didn't talk about it back then. So he'd, he'd lost the work that he loved doing. Where, where did he live? Where was he living? Um, so he was living at Coolum. Um, so at that point, I mean, all of, all of us, of course, our family and friends were all around, but um, Coolum's not Brisbane, so you're an hour and a quarter away. Uh, he's there in a big house on his own. Um, his mates are all flying, uh, either based out of Hong Kong or Sydney or, you know, those with different airlines in different places. Uh, so I think he would have felt incredibly isolated. What kind of things was he doing, Bronwyn, to, I don't know, try and escape what had happened and, and the way he was feeling? Yeah. The, there, were, there were a couple of things that were happening at, at with this. So he then got referred to a psychologist and then on to a psychiatrist at some point. I, you know, I remember it's, it's terrible when you look back. And I, he, I remember him saying to me uh, at some point, I just can't keep doing this. Now, that's a real warning sign. Um, and, but, you know, I didn't know back then what I know now. But he was being consistently plied with additional medication um, to a point where he ended up on an absolute cocktail of dexamphetamine, stabilize, mood stabilisers, antidepressants, um, eventually ADHD drug. Like the whole thing was out of control and it literally created a suicidality in my brother which hadn't been there before. He was travelling a, a lot too. Yeah, he tried to travel. So he always had this, he had, had a massive heart, my brother, and uh, would always be looking to help people that were less fortunate. So for a while there he was, he was um, you know, when he was in Coolum, he'd be, he'd try and surf, he'd go to the gym, like he was really trying to look after himself. Um, there's all these pressures that come as well where, so he was on income protection. So it was this recipe of, um, nothing to do, still got the finances to do stuff, so didn't have to go out and get another job, had to continually uh, 
fill out income protection forms, which was stressful every month, having to prove yourself all the time that you were, like he would have done anything to be flying, but he would travel. And in the beginning, uh, he would go overseas and it would actually help because it was a distraction. You know, it's great to be in another place. Eventually that got to a point where even that didn't work. Would you always know where he was and, and what he was up to when he was away from home? Um, look, we'd, we would know where he'd gone, but this was 15 years ago, so we certainly didn't have the ability to be in touch as much as you do these days. But, yes, he'd always let us know if he was off to um, Peru or if he was um, going to Bali or if he was going to... Thailand or something like so we'd know roughly where he was but there'd be a lot of periods of time when we wouldn't hear from him and look for for many years so you know I was kind of supporting him for about eight years but it wasn't until the last few years I think he just wore an exceptional mask for many of those early years and we did not have any idea how bad he was. Um, what kind of state would he ring you in, Roman, in, in those years as, as yeah, look in, in the bad? In the two to three years prior to him taking his life, uh, I would have phone calls with him in crisis. I, I distinctly remember him calling me once saying he was uh, standing in a paddy field in Laos somewhere, um, desperate, desperate. And I'm in Brisbane. Um, what would you say to him? Oh, you just you're just there and you're listening and you're validating what he's saying and tell him that you love him and you believe in him and please come home where we can support you. And but then he'd think I can't come home, I can't cope at home. So it was just he was running away from the pain, but of course the pain was with him. So. What kind of toll was that taking on you, Bronwyn, emotionally, being that support for your brother? What was it meaning for you and, and, and your family? Look, it does have a, a... It has a massive impact, but, of course, you don't kind of think of it that way because, look, I'd still be doing it today if he were here. If I, I would hope that he wouldn't need it, but um, you'd do it forever. So there's never any thought of, I can't do this anymore, Um your heart breaks for him, but it does have a, a, a huge impact. I mean, it's just the physical, uh, you know, the, the physiological side of things is interesting too because uh, he would text me a lot and and there would be times where I'd get 60 texts in a really short space of time and you, you're trying to keep up and he was just the most speedy texter. I could not keep up with him. So, but it got to a point where I would regularly, and I know my dad needed to do this too, we, we'd actually have to change the tone of the SMS because literally when you heard the sound, your stomach would drop because you'd know that he was in trouble. Um, so little things like that, you know, it took a long time uh, and then you'd have, okay, and then you'd have to change the tone again. Just those things that you don't sort of notice. And my husband took a year off work when I was supporting Mark so much and it was intense and I'd get a call and I'd just have to drop everything and go and, and drive to where he was and spend time with him in his home. And um, so, yeah, it, yeah, of course it has. Your kids were very little at, at this point. Do you think they were registering what was going on? Uh, in, a, in the way that little kids can, yes. I mean, I think, I think every mum out there knows this already and, and, and the science and the research backs it up nowadays anyway. But Kids are so tuned in to parents, but particularly mums, I think. And, um, yeah, I remember um, my husband saying to me once that uh, I'd, I'd arrived, driven up the drive or something, and I got out of the car and I was on the phone. I was on the phone to Mark. And apparently my daughter was in the pool and said, oh, mummy's on the phone to Uncle Mark. Um, so the kids, you know, you try and hide it as much as you can, but you're living in a high-stress fearful state and when your your own central nervous system is at that like it, it just rubs off was he leaning on other people as much as he was leaning on you like your mum and dad or other friends um no um i think quite often siblings will lean into their siblings because they don't want to worry the parents and that was definitely the case but 
in the last couple of years, um, definitely when things really got a lot, yeah, when when the crises became closer and closer together, um, absolutely mum and dad were involved and uh, and everyone played their part. You know, everyone did different things depending on what he needed and, um, you know, dad and I would, would share time and going and staying at his place with him when, when that was needed. Um, mum did enormous amounts of work trying to find help that might be helpful. And, yeah, there were some mates definitely who knew what he was going through and were incredibly supportive, but he also hid it a lot from his friends. So there was only a very, very select couple of mates that really knew what was going on. Podcast, broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app go to abc.net.au slash conversations. When did you get the call that Mark had ended his own life? Um, it was, um, it was actually my birthday. Um, and we had, I'd, I'd woken that morning with just a horrible um, feeling in my stomach. But, uh, you know, there's a story behind that and I I'd, I'd had meant to be in Sydney with him and I'd made a decision not to be and um, that's something that I live with. Can you share that, Roman? Yeah, look, he'd, he'd been overseas and been in crisis and, and I'd finally found a place in Sydney where he could have gone and stayed for about three weeks um, and had some intense support Um Prior to that, we we together we'd gone to this uh, specialist around medication in Australia in Sydney. I'd flown down for the day and taken him, and he'd had this massive day of all these assessments and everything. And and the outcome of that was you shouldn't be on any of this medication. You don't need any of it. Um, you might need something to help you sleep occasionally, and um, you know this type of therapy might be really helpful for you. He'd found a GP that he was comfortable with and they were gradually trying to wean him off this stuff. Um, he'd then gone overseas, though, not travelling well. I'd finally convinced him to come home um, and to come to this place and go for three weeks. And I'd said, I will, I'll come down and I'll stay in your apartment. I'll be there. Um, and he wanted me there that weekend because he was, he was needing to catch up with someone that he'd had um, a relationship with uh, and it had not gone well and he really needed to, I guess, get some sort of closure around that. And I just had that horrible values dilemma where it was my birthday, I had two little kids, I had a husband, um, they wanted me at home. I had my brother who was I knew was going into a pre- very precarious setting himself up for a very precarious confrontation. And so there was the values dilemma and there was fear on my behalf of would I be roaming the streets of Sydney trying to find him in the middle of the night. And I made a decision and said, I really can't come down. I will be there Monday and we'll go together. And the last thing he texted me was, I've never needed you more in my life and you're not here. Um, so I woke up the morning, the Sunday morning, feeling sick, thinking, oh, what's gone on last night? Um, can't ring now. He'll be asleep till midday. Uh, went to brekkie with mum and um, my husband and kids and then we took the kids to, the, to a park. Mum went home um, 
after a bit, I just said to my husband, "I just let's just get out of here. I just, I just feel revolting. Let's just go home." Uh, and we were literally driving almost home, and the phone rang. I presume I picked it up. I don't know, but someone asked to speak to Glenn, and he looked at me, uh, and the kids are in the back, and I just went, "Is it Mark?" And he nodded, um, and I could tell by his face we'd lost him. Um, and then I don't know why, but it mattered. And I, I mentioned one method and he shook his head and I mentioned another and he nodded and I just screamed. And then I remember him looking at me going, shaking his head, as in the kids are in the back. So I had to pull myself together. We went straight to mum's. We rang a close family friend who often babysat the kids and she came immediately and grabbed the kids so they didn't get out of the car. I just went in to, to mum and the police were there. I'm so sorry. So it was a pretty horrific morning. I mean, what have birthdays been like for you since then? That anniversary to be on the same day must be a very painful way yeah, for you. Yeah, don't celebrate it. And that's my choice. Um, that's, been hard. that's been hard for mum. She's found that really tough. And I really feel sorry for her for that. But it's, it, it is my birthday and I, I've had to just make that a decision that is okay for me um, because no one wakes up on that morning and goes, yay, it's Bronnie's birthday. So I think that's made it hard. I, I only, a few years ago I decided that um, three days later would be Bronnie Day and a, and a few times I've been out to lunch with a bunch of girlfriends on that day and it's not that we do a happy birthday but everyone knows. Um, but my husband did a really special, beautiful thing for me for my 50th because he knew I wouldn't celebrate it. And he actually reached out to all my closest people, all my tribe um, or a large selection of my tribe. And I didn't know what was happening, but, it, but I got this invitation to, to meet uh, one of my greatest friends and that we were going to go for a walk. And so I met her and there she is standing on the sidewalk in Tuong with two balloons or something or three balloons and gave me a big hug and said, come on. And so we just started to walk. And as we walked from Tuong, um, we just kept bumping into my people. <laughs> and so we walked and then we, you know, friends from, from preschool, from my close friends from school, you know, people from work, all just people. <laughs> and we ended up at um, the Newstead House Gardens um, so collecting this tribe of people that were just walking and, um, and then there was uh, other family friends and my mum and, um, and it wasn't a birthday celebration, but it was just, he couldn't have done anything better. That is really an amazingly beautiful, a yeah. beautiful thing. Were you back then, or I guess in, in the years since, have you ever been angry at Mark and angry at the load he put on you and the timing of all of that? No. And other people have asked me that. I haven't ever been able to be angry with him. Um, and, and it would be a very normal thing to feel, and I'm sure a lot of people do. I wonder sometimes whether it's because I was so close to him and he and I got so much closer through those last few years. It was a gift that he allowed me to be part of that part of him. And I know the pain that he was in. I saw, um, I saw him in physical pain because of his emotional pain. And I can't be angry with him. Um, but it's the most devastating thing that's ever happened in my life. And, um, but I don't think he deserves me to be angry at him. Grief, like the grief you would have been thrown into, you kind of see the world differently out of that. Mm. How do you remember looking around you after Mark's death? Um, so the first couple of years, I, I, they're just a blur. Uh, I have friends, because so my daughter was only in prep She'd only been in prep, it was August when he passed away. So we, we had new friends, as you make, when your kids start school. 
and obviously the the tried and true, like I have three best friends just who have been with me for life and they were there um, by my side immediately um, and stayed there. So I was incredibly lucky. But those friends from the school, they were amazing because for many people even today, they don't know what to say, they walk away and they just disappear from your life. They were there and they turned up, which was incredible. Um, but those first couple of years, they'll say to me, oh, they'll talk about stuff and go, I don't even remember that. They're like, yeah, Bronnie, you weren't really here. So somewhere along that two-year mark, I remember one day actually looking up and actually realising that the sky was blue. Uh, and to me that was like, wow, where have I been? So it was just a haze and, I, and you just had to get up because you had two little kids. And you'd feel like a, a layer of skin's been removed between you and the rest of the world. It, it's just, it just feels like it's, it's a very surreal feeling and, and a lot of people will resonate with this that it's not related to suicide. But when, when, you, when you lose something or when something's really going on in your life, I think what's quite um, jolting is that the world actually goes on. So I would burst into tears pushing the trolley down the supermarket aisle or I would cry in the car because I'd just fall apart but the rest of the world was still going on and no one had any idea. I think one of the lovely things that that teaches you is if someone's grumpy to you or rude, give them the benefit of the doubt because you don't actually know what they're experiencing right now. And sure, some people are just grumpy and rude. But, you know, I think the vast majority of people aren't. And just stuff going on for people and you shouldn't judge people. How were your mum and dad doing? How was it impacting the way they were living their lives? So both my parents um, were amazing. My mum is incredibly stoic and strong and I know that she wishes she didn't have to be that way all the time. Um, but she's been on her own for a long time and she's incredibly capable. I think she's quite pragmatic. Um, so both my parents were a tower of strength for me. Um, I was the one who visit like really fell apart. She has been to my brother's grave every weekend since he passed unless she's been out of Brisbane. She's very um, traditional so to her that is that is what a mum does and and I really honour her for that. It's something that I can't do but I admire her for that and that's and so I think mum's done she has to have done an enormous amount of grieving behind closed doors and I don't know what that's looked like and that's been her choice. Um, my dad was, um, uh, you know, he had a, a second family, um, you know, lovely son and daughter and they were sort of uni and end of school or middle of school and, and, and just into uni and stuff. So I think he tried to put on a brave face but Dad's memory had been a real problem in those last couple of years and the GPs were sort of saying, look, it's just stress, it's just stress. But it wasn't long before Dad actually fell into early dementia, um, Alzheimer's. And uh, there are those who believe that uh, and others won't believe this at all, but there are people and, and it, I tend to agree that for some people this is a way the body shuts down when they just can't cope. My dad's brother died on the same day as Mark died, which he couldn't even contemplate at the time. I remember him coming and saying, Bronwyn, my bucket's full, it's okay. I'll grieve for my brother in time. So he was, it was massive. So, yeah, Dad, um, we started to lose him. How did you talk to your kids about the loss of their uncle? What words did you find as a, as a parent? Yeah, it's... Um, so they were only three and five. It's, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what I said. I, I don't know. And dare say my husband um, would have had some conversations that I'm not even aware of because I, I just don't remember. But they knew that Uncle Mark, we, in, in little kid language, we'd said, oh, Uncle Mark's sad. Um, so they knew that Uncle Mark was sad. So, um, you know, two weeks after... He'd passed and we'd had the funeral. His, one of his best mates, who was a um, Peruvian guy, uh, he hadn't been able to get a visa to get out for the funeral. So he, he came and the whole family went and, and, and Jose as well. And we took roses to the beach where Mark was at, um, at Coulomb, that lived at Coulomb. And we just said to them, it was really, I remember crouching down on the sand saying, 
you know, we know Uncle Mark was really sad, but just because you're sad doesn't mean you die. And it's really important that if you are sad that you that you reach out and ask someone um, to help you tell them. And if you see any of your friends that are sad, you reach out and you try and support them. And we're going to put these roses in the ocean and all the animals in the sea are going to be really happy when they find the rose. You know, you, it, you're talking to a three- and five-year-old. Um, and my son placed his rose in the water and a beautiful turtle rose right there and we had this whale breach 50 metres offshore and this sea eagle fly over us with a fish and perch on the tree and it was incredibly therapeutic for us, people who've been through something and even just anyone who is lost and then you have a funeral, it's exhausting. It was, you know, a swim in the surf after that and it was just, oh, we now we need to find this new normal Roses in the Ocean is the name that you gave to the organisation that you then founded as a, a suicide prevention and advocacy organisation. I imagine there would have been people in your position with all of what your family had been carrying who'd be like, I'm going to go and work with puppies. Like, I'm not having anything more to do <laughs> Sounds with, great. with this. <laughs> why, why were you compelled to stay with such a painful thing? I... I can't really answer that other than, you know, I'd always said to the kids there's always a silver lining and there isn't with suicide. And I thought, well, this is a shocking lesson. We need to create a silver lining. So I, I, I don't know, I can't tell you any more than that. I, it was just something I had to do and it was, you know, I remember... I remember Mum and Dad and I going to some, I didn't even know who ran it, some workshop to help people around the topic of suicide. Before Mark had died, we were looking for help anywhere. And people were going around, the, oh, this is what the situation is. And, and they were going, oh, well, you know, could consider this. And when we told our story, the, the facilitator actually just said, oh, I, I have no, I've got nothing for you. I've got no idea what you do. And it was just... Clearly the treatment he got was completely outrageous, but I think suicide was barely spoken about, help was impossible to find, and any help that was there was useless. It had to change. Your organisation puts at the centre people who have lived experience of suicide. Why is that so important? So I don't think you can possibly pretend to be able to help and solve um, issues, provide appropriate support, um, provide what people need if you don't actually understand them. <laughs> if, you don't, if, you don't, if you don't know what it's like to get to a point where your pain is so intense that, that suicide is the only thing you can think of, it's the only answer, the only option left, when there's clearly, for other people who aren't in that dark space... There's clearly other options you can keep. If you don't understand that, how on earth are you going to provide support to someone? How do you, how do you know what people who've been bereaved by suicide need unless you've heard from them? So it, to me, it, it, unless you've walked in those shoes and have left, unless you've actually been informed by and people who know what it's like are actually designing the support that's required, you're just guessing so it was critical that people's voices had to be heard to inform what they needed. In all of the messaging around mental health and suicide, the, the message is talk to someone. But I guess it matters who you choose to talk to. It really matters what happens. So firstly, it can be the hardest thing in the world to reach out and talk to someone. So we've got to do better than just asking people to reach out and get some help because when you're in that space and needing help, people tell us we can't find it, we can't get the help, it's too hard. Um, so, but when someone does, if you get that magic opportunity where someone actually talks, they have to, that has to be a good experience because if it's not, you may have slammed the door on the only time that they're going to reach out. So regardless of where it goes, this is why everyone in community, everyone in society, everyone in our health system has to have that lived experience informed suicide literacy. They have to make sure that whenever anyone reaches out, 
but also way before then, we've got to know how to recognise and respond when people might just have a certain number of things going on in their life that could make them feel this way and be able to have that conversation as well. People can be afraid of, of saying the wrong thing if someone they know, someone they love, shares with them that they're thinking about suicide. Mm. From your understanding, Bronwyn, what, what is the helpful thing to say? Mm. What should we not say? Yeah. Look, it's, it's a really good question. And I, I think, yes, being taking it upon yourself to be educated is, is really good. It's a really good thing to do. But the most important thing to remember is that people want to be heard. So you don't have to solve their problems. People want to be, they are the experts in their own life. They need to be heard and to be validated. So even if family or friend or colleague has no clue what to say, all you need to do is to listen deeply, validate their feelings, let them know that you're there for them and that you're really prepared to walk alongside them and together work out what they need and how to, and, and that you can help, you, you'll help in any way you can. Then you can go and get educated more. So yes, there's certainly things that can be said that will actually be really helpful as well. I mean, it's, you know, you've got someone who, say if you've got someone who is um, really starting to disconnect, they're pulling away from family, from friends, uh, they're really struggling, they're in a dark place, they don't have any sense of self-worth, self-belief, they think everything's hopeless and helpless. Even if they won't communicate with you, those small deposits into their emotional bank account, letting them know, I'm so proud of you. Like, I can't believe you've managed to do this today. It must be so hard to be feeling the way you do. Even if you've never been there before, I can't possibly understand what you're going through, but it looks like it's really tough. I want you to know I'm here. Um, you know, how amazing that you managed to go to school today. How incredible that you've managed to go to work today. That must be so exhausting. It's that validation, letting people know. I mean, I think people who go through these things are so courageous. They've got so much resilience. They're fighting and, they're, and it's hard. And if they're getting out of bed, it's incredible. <laughs> you've met many other people with lived experience of suicide, whether people who've survived a suicide attempt or who've lost someone or, or tried to support someone who's been struggling with that. What's what struck you? What are some of the people's who, whose stories or ways of being around this have really impressed you in some way? Every single one of them. And I genuinely mean that. Every single story that I've had the privilege to hear um, has inspired me because every single story is unique. You can have a 100 people in the room who've made attempts on their life and they will all have a different story, there'll be something to learn from them. Um, you know, I, I dig deeply into my, my network of people and friends, my tribe, to, to constantly understand. And if I'm supporting someone else, I personally haven't experienced what it's like to be suicidal. I, I, I lean on those people so that I can continue to learn what it feels like and what's helpful. So every single story... Has helping other people or helping other people share their stories around suicide, has it helped you carry the burden of, of your loss of Mark? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's human nature. If you, if you help someone else, you feel good. What, what, what can you do that's better than helping someone else? So, yes, absolutely. And we, we absolutely find that as well in the work that we do. I mean, people... People come and, and tell us. I mean, some people will, will ring and email over the years like, you've saved my life. Um, finding my voice has saved my life. Connecting with others who get me saves my life. So it's, it absolutely is, is enormously powerful in, in people's healing. You've done this incredibly powerful um, and generous thing out of your family's grief, Bronwyn. But when you look back over how you've changed through loving Mark in the lead up to his death and, and following his death. How has it changed you as a person, do you think? I think it's changed me enormously um, in some ways. I hope I haven't completely changed. Um, but I don't think you can go through an intense experience like this without changing. 
I don't think I was ever a judgmental person. I don't think that anyone would have said that of me, but I'm absolutely sure that I have such a broader, wider, open heart and mind to difference and acceptance and um, and that's really lovely. That's a gift. Um, I don't think I'm as fun as I was. I, I don't... I don't actually think I experience joy. I can laugh and I can in, enjoy myself and that took years to be able to get there. But So there, there's there's like this kind of little filter over the world still um, and that's something I've got to continue to work on. Ironically, I absolutely had never, I had not found my groove in what my space in the world was until... I started Rose in the Ocean. So I, I can honestly say out of Mark's death came a, a, a clarity of purpose in my life um, and I think I've become a better... I, I think I'm... I always had this sense that I, I'm, I'm actually destined to be better than I am. I'm not the best version of myself and, I, and I'm still not. I, I hope that you constantly improve yourself all your life but I do feel like... I've found a way to bring a, a range of me, I guess, into a into a role where I can do some good in the world, and that feels good. Well, I think that's a definite that you are doing good in the world. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story on Conversations. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Bronwyn Edwards was my guest today, and the organisation that Bronwyn has founded is called Roses in the Ocean, and we'll put a link to that at the Conversations website. If you need to talk to somebody, Lifeline is always there on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Or you'll also find a range of other really valuable resources and organisations at the Roses in the Ocean website. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.